Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people. When those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise up. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, program that seeks to educate, inform, and in the words of Frederick Douglass, agitate, agitate, agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas, with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is May 11, 2016. On tonight's broadcast, we look at the information provided by CEO of the GEO Group, George Zoli's recent stock sales of the GEO Group. We've been warning of the conflicts of interest when it comes to prison stocks. Among others, judges, cops, prosecutors, lawmakers, legislators, and unions have no damn business buying or owning prison stocks. It is a blatant conflict of interest and creates corruption at the cost of freedom and lives. Well, today we'll show you how California Teachers Union isn't following divestment campaigns, they are increasing their stock assets in prison for profit. California pays private prisoners nearly $250,000 a year to incarcerate one single child for one single year, and the teachers union is cashing in big time. Also, we've been warning you about this for a long time now, and it's becoming legal and straight from the president's desk. This February, President Obama signed the Trade Facilitation and Enforcement Act. This legislation gave U.S. Customs the ability to prohibit, stop, and enforce a ban on products coming into the United States that have been made with forced or prison slave labor. Just last October, Obama said that 
if we can get this agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, to my desk, then we can help our businesses sell more made-in-America goods and services around the world, and we can help more American workers compete and win. What the president unfortunately didn't mention is that Unicor is aggressively competing with domestic manufacturers by utilizing cheap prison slave labor, and the Department of Defense is using that slave labor to the tune of at least $900 million a year. Further, Colorado voters this fall will have a chance to finally put an end to legalized slavery. Like many other states, references to legal slavery still exist in Colorado's Constitution. Article 2 of the state Constitution says that there shall be never, there shall never be in this state either slavery or involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. The measure, Senate Concurrent Resolution 16-006, received unanimous support from both state, veterans, and military affairs committees in the House and Senate, and unanimous votes from the Senate and House, which passed the measure Wednesday. The resolution, which will appear on the November 2016 ballot, strikes everything after the word servitude, leaving simply, there shall never be in this state either slavery or involuntary servitude. Period. On another battlefield, in San Francisco, where recently a Bayview precinct officer was recorded as saying he only transferred to the station to kill niggas, lawyers and activists have, uh, are fighting a historic battle against an industry that is globally banned in all but two countries the for-profit bail industry. Part of a larger system known as money bail, which enables many defendants to be released before their cases go to court as long as they post property or cash as collateral. Next week, a federal judge in Oakland will hear arguments that money bail, as currently implemented in San Francisco's jails, violates the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. More than 60% of people in California's jails have been, haven't been convicted of a crime, and most of them sit and rock, risking da daily death for no other reason than that they can't afford the extortion fees set by judges and exploited by private industry. Those are our main stories tonight, and we'll try to squeeze in as many more as we can. Our rider of the 21st Century Railroad is Gary Tyler. At 16, Tyler was the youngest person on Louisiana's death row. He walked free from the state's notorious Angola prison late on Friday after serving 41 years of an unconstitutional life sentence over the shooting death of a white high school student during a violent and racially charged chapter in the state's fight to segregate schools. Our abolitionist in profile is Anthony Benizet, 1713 to 1784, the teacher. Anthony Benizet was a Quaker teacher, writer, and abolitionist. He had a big influence on Thomas Clarkson. If you have war stories from the field, we want you to call in and give us all updates, especially regarding the upcoming national prison labor strike on September 9th and the current Alabama prison labor strikes. We want to hear about any divestment efforts also. So please call us at 1-641-715-3660. The access code is 549-032-POUND. Just expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? What's good with you, Max? Doing the best oh, I can. Man, man. I'm in a struggle the past few days. Been 
under the weather, brother. But I'm I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. Doing the best that you can, right? That's all I can do, brother. That's all I can do is the best I can. And sometimes that's good enough. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, I hear you. How about you, man? How has your week been uh, this past seven uh, just, days since last time we talked? Uh, just trying to rehab myself um, and, you know, since the reoccurrence of my my injury, re, you know, but um, still doing what um, I have to do in terms of the week work um, of the Black Talk Media Project and, you know, getting programs on air and still posting podcasts. So I'm not down to the point that I can't get my work done. So um, I, I'm doing the best I can. That's about it, man. That's all we can do. Um, hopefully, Brother Johanna will be able to join us tonight. Uh, he celebrated his birthday last week, as a matter of fact. So, um, happy birthday to you a little late. Gave it to you last week, but again, happy birthday to you. And happy birthday to my oldest son. Uh, his birthday was just a couple of days ago. Shout out to, to him as well, out in California. Uh, just speaking about California made me think about it. And I got a lot of family out that way, brother. Man, it's been an interesting week, and the news has been overwhelming. Back in the day when we first started, we would only find like a dozen stories uh, that fit the narrative that we were presenting. <clears throat> Nowadays, it's unlimited numbers. We have 30, 40, 50 stories easily on our page to choose from, uh, trying to pick out which is more important. Today, I went to battlefield themes. I want people to see the victories that we're, do- uh, we're receiving and the battles that we're fighting on everyone's behalf. Most certainly, most certainly. Hey, I know, again, there are so many stories, and that's why, you know, we create these forums and groups on using social media to share stories with um, each other. But the information is so much information out there to support, um, you know, the fact that slavery and, and human trafficking, involuntary servitude, all of this is happening under the color of the law. So, you know, everything, we can't cram everything into a two-hour show and what have you, uh, and then add the other segments as well. But I don't know if you had an opportunity to catch the interview of a representative for the incarcerated workers of the world, um, I believe is what they call themselves, um, but IWW, yes. Yeah, they were on uh, Russia Today doing an interview. And during this interview, he was talking about, you know, the uh, strikes, the work stoppages, if you will, the slave uprising, and the language that he was using. And he specifically mentioned the 13th Amendment, said that it did not abolish slavery. Many people falsely believed this. So there's again. You know, and while, no, this guy isn't Barack Obama, he's not Joe Biden, he's not uh, Mitt Romney, he's not Oprah, he's not some scholar like, um, um, you know, Skip Gates or something. No, they are not, you know, this is an unknown activist, an uh, abolitionist, uh, standing up for modern-day slavery, uh, uh, against modern-day slavery, but he took the opportunity on Russia today has an international audience. They reaching millions of people, far more than us. And so for, you know, again, to see another example of somebody using that opportunity to use the correct language to point out that slavery was never abolished, number one. And what we're talking about today is, in fact, a continuation of 
of slavery, involuntary servitude, and uh, human trafficking. You know, uh, I'm a poet, Scotty, and I know the value of words. I know how important they are to understanding and right thinking. And changing your language is the first step into changing your mind. You, you know, you, you can't keep playing with a tiger and calling it a kitty. <laughs> and when the tiger eats you, oh, the kitty ate me. That's not how it's got to work. You've got to call it what it is. This is slavery and human trafficking, which is being exploited by private industry and the federal government, as well as state government, using the 13th Amendment exception clause as the excuse in order to do that. And uh, if you just start looking at it as slavery instead of mass incarceration or some other synonym that may be going around, because, you know, they got thousands of them now. That changes how you approach things. It also sets a uh, stage for other people to adopt the same language and start acting accordingly. And we're seeing that now on a global level. As you pointed out, that was a worldwide audience. The same thing happened with Brother Muadin Dabaha on MSNBC and a number of other uh, mainstream media outlets now where abolitionists are speaking out uh, about modern-day slavery and human trafficking. Well, it was years ago when we first started this, man. Mainly people were just talking about abolishing prisons. Uh, but we're not talking about just abolishing prisons. Prisons is one aspect of what's happening. But in the 1800s, if you abolished plantations, slavery would not have ended. They would have found something else. And that's exactly what they did. Well, I'm not that point. I'm not that far along uh, in my abolitionist journey to say that we don't need prisons and what have you as being a member of a family who has suffered you know losses from violent crime and what have you and you know I know if there wasn't a system in place to take this person off the street and put them in a jail um, that me and other young uh, black males in our family uh, we were going to kill them you know it was going to be vigilante justice as they call it and what have you so you know, uh, when you have real crime like that, where, you know, people, we're talking about matters of life and death, uh, they you have to put them somewhere. Nobody's, you know, of course, it's got to be rehabilitative. I'm against the death penalty. But um, what I'm talking about is slavery, where you are just passing laws, codes, and what have you um, to criminalize behavior that is not victimizing anyone um, and you're doing it for the sole purpose it, to uh, fill your uh, fill your pockets, just like you know every enslaver ever born or ever to operate on this continent. It's it's all profit. It's all profit driven. It, it really has nothing to do with crime and punishment. Even though we talk about it or they talk about it in those terms, it's really just you know. Um, increasing opportunities to increase uh, uh, enslave people and profit off of, of of people today. Indeed, indeed, Scotty. Just like the black codes in the late 1800s, which came about immediately after the alleged emancipation, uh, where they switched right away to convict leasing and enacted the black codes, making black life basically criminal, so they could fill these cages with black bodies that they would lease out to the mines and railroads and the plantations. The very same thing is happening today. And it is relatively, in comparison, a new phenomenon because it's only reached uh, this type of peak since 
the war on drugs began with Nixon. That's when really it began at this level. And then it accelerated with Reagan when he in, introduced the first for-profit private prisons. And then it really went out of control when the Clintons got a hold of it and their 94 crime bills just basically criminalized being black. And he even said that was their intent when they started calling us super predators to demonize us and criminalize us. You know, um, and uh, we're about to bring Johanna in, but first let me just say this. You know, here in the state of North Carolina, shout out to the NAACP and the families that and the community at, in Harnett County. I watched the press conference that Reverend Barber gave the other day where they have sent a letter, a formal complaint to the Attorney General, U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch and her deputy, deputy Attorney General, Ms. Gupta, I think is her name, uh, something right. like that, and calling for, check this out, a Ferguson-like investigation of the sheriff's department of the municipality saying it's just like Ferguson. And so, you know, again, I, of course, thought of you guys, America is Ferguson, you know, and and so um, that's something to keep an eye on as they attack that aspect of slavery. But what was interesting, there were white families who had joined because you had white victims of slave catchers who had been gunned down in their homes, um, a case of so-called mistaken identity and whatnot. Um, everybody that's going into jail, apparently this county has a high population of poor whites and what have you. Um, you know, uh, even some of the proxy racist slave catchers uh, have engaged in killing people that look like them, killing black people. So you got black on black crime in slavery and, and what have you. So I'm really, you know, uh, just encouraged by uh, what I'm the organ, the level of organization I'm seeing against the system of slavery, racism. And as Dr. Barbara said, classism and uniting people. Uh, you know, uh, on a common enemy um, to abolish a certain segment of slavery in that county. So I wanted to give a shout out to them. But as I stated, uh, Johanna is now with us. Greetings to you, brother. I know you couldn't join us last week. Uh, happy belated birthday to you. Um, so, yeah. Welcome home, brother. Peace, peace. Good to be here. Good to be here, man. I missed y'all last week. Um, it just the whole thing just it just couldn't happen. But uh, uh, anybody that follows the program and knows me personally, I, I I do my best not to miss, man. So that was on my heart. Um, the struggle never ends for our people. That's you know on the plantation, that's behind them walls, that's in, in being engaged in the slave system, that's being hunted down, being kidnapped, being abused. There is no night off. You know there is no time when the target is not on their head. So you know it, it, I take it personal, man, to not be. Uh, you know, standing at attention and on point and in my position, every opportunity is given. So we're back tonight. We're going to make up for it. We're going to keep working. You said America is Ferguson. And uh, on my personal page, I got uh, my profile page. My profile pic changed over. I got uh, the Ferguson is America t-shirt. So <laughs> going to fire up the, the, the t-shirt uh, drive again and get some funding in for New Abolitionist Radio and for the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, overall, folks, we need to uh, we need to support the grassroots. So, word, and then it's not like we're trying to pay salaries or, or go on luxury vacations and stuff like that. Our main goal is just to get the word out in any way right. we can. 
whether it be billboards, television ads, radio ads, whatever we need to do to get the word out so more people understand. Uh, what we've done on a shoestring budget is simply amazing. Imagine if we had a few dollars in the bank to spend. Right, right, right. So, y'all yeah, been chopping it up. I've been listening in for a little bit before we came on. So, uh, the table is set. Y'all let me know when we're ready to, ready to eat here. Well, let's start with a, a big chunk of something that comes right out of your playbook, brother. As uh, a matter of fact, you were the one that turned me on to this news regarding George Zoli selling almost 10,000 shares of the GEO Group uh, from his own personal stock portfolio. Uh, I read into the, the story that you shared there and discovered something that just blew my mind regarding the teachers' union out in California, which I think reflects many teachers' unions across the nation, and how instead of divesting from prison uh, stocks, they're investing in prison stocks, which is a, a hell of a conflict of interest. I mean, you have teachers in California who are retiring partially based on how many of their students go to prison. That, 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 that is ridiculous right there. And when you think about it, in California, they're not uh, just any state. California has a budget for the Department of Corrections of near $11 billion a year to incarcerate one single child in California for one single year in a private facility like the GEO Group provides costs $240,000 a year. So, yeah, yeah, and this uh, California, to uh, just kind of give an idea of the school-to-prison pipeline, California is playing the private prison game from pretty much every angle that we've been able to reveal. Um, the school-to-prison pipeline, the highest rates of suspensions uh, among the Latino community, blacks are right there behind them, the highest level of uh, expulsions, the Latinos and the blacks are right there behind them, the highest numbers of special education programs, which are blacks and Latinos leading that, the highest numbers of arrests in school systems where the, the uh, school police resource officers are arresting students for what would normally be, you know, in-house discipline, you know, somebody get detention or suspension or something, whatever. If the police are there on site, they're there to enforce the law. Uh, so these are all numbers going on with the school to prison pipeline aspect of it. Then you turn around and look at it from, uh, the standpoint, like you said, the unions and what the teachers, so they represent both sides of it. Uh, look at it with the divestiture aspect of it. Look at it from the sending the overcrowded, 200% overcrowded prisons into private prisons, GO group owned private prisons in states all throughout the South, Oklahoma, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, states that already have 190% overcapacity themselves, but the, the uh, private prisons allow these California inmates to be shipped into these out-of-state prisons, and therefore they can show that their roles have been reduced, like they had a federal mandate damn near 10 years ago to cut the uh, population, and the only way they cut it is to ship these people out, so that's human trafficking and participating in, so I mean it's just like on and on, California is doing it all. Exploiting the hell, especially the immigration system. California is making a fortune on immigration right now. Immigration. Uh, that's one of the reasons why they have a thirty-four thousand a month mandatory inmate. Uh, a memo, what is, what is it? The uh, guarantee that they have. Yeah, it's one of the reasons that they have that is because that's where their bread and butter is. So why don't you uh, go into this story about the the Geo Group and their shares of stocks, if you don't mind? No problem. No problem. Uh, 
So, um, and and we haven't reported on it yet, but the uh, the earnings call went out last week um, for the quarter. So we've seen some changes with all of that, and I haven't been up to speed on follow, you know, like getting that all deciphered and just kind of figuring out where we're headed here for the near future. And this is especially important for people to pay attention to now because of the election season being on us and being on us so heavy. Uh, we know that uh, lobbyists for the private prison industry are working as campaign managers and high officials in the campaign of like Hillary Clinton, you know, for example. So this is the reality of slavery going into the into the future. And this story that came out, this is like a week after the the uh, the uh, end of the quarter uh, uh, conference call or whatever. This is like a week later. George Zoli, the CEO, sold 9,297 shares of the firm stock in a transaction on May 3rd. Uh, it was sold at an average uh, price of $32 a share for a total transaction of $300,000, just over $300,000. Um, so now he owns 999,086 shares of the company, which is valued at about $32,300,000. So why, um, why you why you think he, he made that sale? Because, I mean, for the layperson, it might be hard to interpret. You know why some people might interpret it as, oh, he's dumping stock. Because we have seen certain points, I think it was last year, where there was a dip in their, you know, stock exchange prices and what have you and they were losing money and what have you or you know is this possibly him just cashing in some stocks to buy himself a new toy perhaps a yacht or something a nice big fat diamond ring for the wife you know right right yeah i'm sure that there's aspects of it that has to do with uh the firm uh the uh the company itself the corporation's uh like market capitalization uh, having to do with uh, the different ratings because this is a this is a tech heavy uh, uh, website where this came from this information so of course the writing is going to be real specific to you know the ratings on the shares and should you buy should you hold should you sell so I'm sure that his lead because if you if you follow them them and CCA uh, being privately held corporations uh, that have pretty much their entire revenue generated by federal uh, federal detention contracts or what have you, and then act like you know aftercare for parole and probation and all these other things they get into. But uh, if you follow them, they have executives that sell off chunks of shares all the time. They'll sell off you know twenty, thirty thousand shares, you know, or whatever, and and run up whatever kind of cash flow they do. I don't know exactly. I don't really have a pinpoint for why he did it other than it's something that was smart you know for business whether it's a visual thing or whether it's something that you know maybe they wanted to free up some liquid cash to throw at Hillary for all I know I mean that's 300 grand they, they, he just got in his pocket personally so he could very easily put that in a briefcase and send that through to his lobbyist and get some kind of law passed or written or whatever that's what they've been doing so at any rate um, where Max was talking about the California State Teachers uh, system. This is further down in the story. It says several institutional investors have made changes to their positions on GEO. Uh, the Russell Frank Company increased its position in shares of the GEO Group by 12% in the fourth quarter. They now own 282,000 shares. And this is a part of where they talk about the uh, both GEO and CCA have turned themselves into real estate investment trusts, which gives them pretty much tax exemption. Um, so it makes it a like a like a tax haven for investors. They don't they don't have to pay the same kind of tax rates or in some cases at all for having you know major millions of dollars. That's earning money for them. Um, 
so now that particular investment firm stock is worth eight million, um, and they bought another thirty thousand shares last quarter. The California State Teachers Retirement System increased its position in shares of the Geo Group by one point five percent in the fourth quarter. The California State Teachers Retirement System now owns. 138,340 shares of the Real Estate Investment Trust stock, which is worth $3,999,000 after buying an additional 2,091 shares in in the fourth quarter of last year. So, I mean, I don't know who would feel comfortable about that, but the California State Teachers Retirement System has nearly $4 million worth of stock in just one private prison. That's I mean, I, I don't even know how that's legal or possible, or I don't know how people aren't like pitchforks and and torches, you know, going down there and demanding you better divest right now or else. Right, and this is just one state that we're talking about. Just right. the state of California. Collectively, the teachers' union has been reported to have nearly a hundred million dollars invested in the construction of private prisons, and apparently, because it's listed under a real estate uh, program that maybe they, they're not aware of who they're buying stocks in. You're buying stocks in an industry where the stocks reflect the number of bodies in sales. Hmm. And in the case of California's teachers and teachers as a whole, we're talking about kids. We're talking about the kids that were in your classroom that were messing up and then you sent them through the school of prison pipeline and then they ended up, guess where? In prison and you're retiring on that. Yep. It's like clockwork. It's it's like automatic. See, most people have to go to work and produce, have to perform to some degree or another. They have to keep uh, a standard. They have to meet like a quota, a number. They gotta be there a certain number of hours. They gotta put they gotta put something out. But a lot of these things that are related to slavery and, and, and interlinked with and holding hands with modern day slavery the way that they are, a lot of these are almost running on autopilot and generating more revenues for the people that are participating in it than regular old hard work is doing for the working person. You know, you can have big investments in real estate investment trust private prisons and be making a killing where somebody else is working every day and trying to put their money into into common stocks that are, uh, you know, more or less honestly earned is is a sucker. You're, you're never going to get to these levels of, of revenue that these people generate. And the same thing with the corrections officers, same thing with the cops, the prosecutors, the judges, on and on down the line. People that are a part of this slave system and benefiting from it are doing the least amount of, uh, least amount of work, taking the least amount of risk, dealing with the least amount of resistance from the system. They operating within the system and not, not in no kind of way in th- uh, threatened by going to jail or getting arrested or, be, or doing time if they are doing crime. I mean, the equation is so off. And we're not just, you know, pissing and moaning or whatever. Like, this is reality, people. This teacher's retirement system for the entire state has $4 million worth of shares in just one private prison company. I mean, it, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how people it's don't just care. some things you, people just need to understand. There's certain instances where you don't want these types of conflicts of interest. If you found out that a judge owned major stocks in a private prison in his community or in his district, you wouldn't want him to be a judge because his, uh, there would be a conflict of interest, right? The same thing with police. You wouldn't want them to have stocks in prisons because they might just start arresting people so they can earn more money doing it. You know, there's certain things you don't want. You don't want to hear about your doctor owning a funeral home. You just don't want to hear that. 
because it's not in his best interest to heal you. It's just in right. his best interest to see you dead in his funeral home. So these are conflicts right. of interests that you don't need in your life, and they need to end. We got to take a break. Before we read the, go to the break, I just want to read the final statement in this article regarding the size and scope of this company. The Geo Group, Inc. is a real estate investment trust, NYSC, GEO, specializing in ownership, leasing, and management of correctional detention and reentry facilities and the provision of community-based services and youth services in the United States, Australia, South Africa, the United Kingdom, and Canada. Slavery has gone global again. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. When we come back, we'll hit you with our next story, and it's a mind blower. We'll be right back after these messages. The Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. Tuned in to Black Talk Radio, new black media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we were just talking about the geo group size and scope and the global influence that they have, and we want to continue with that. Speaking about the new trade agreement that was just uh, coming to play with uh, America and the rest of the world. And this is a story from The Hill. And it's titled Prisoners Compete for a Share of Made in USA. And it's by Rick Heffelbein. He is the uh, author of this and contributor to it. I'm going to read as much of it as I can to try to uh, drive home what it is he's saying so you can understand this. And this is not something you haven't heard before. If you're a listener of New Abolitionist Radio, we predicted this would occur. We told you this was going to happen. It starts with being there is a 1979 movie whose main character is Chauncey Gardner. He is a simple man who obtains his knowledge by tending to a garden and watching television. Through a series of events, Chauncey is thrust into the public spotlight where people worship every word he says. Concerned about the economy, the President of the United States asked Chauncey if the U.S. should try to stimulate growth through incentives. Chauncey can only answer with what he knows and replies, yes, there will be growth in the spring. The president loves the response and praises Chauncey's good sense by adding, that's precisely what we lack on Capitol Hill. One can only wonder if the facts behind the whole made-in-USA phenomenon are starting to parody the fictional government that so revered Chauncey, except for a few superstars in Congress who have taken the time to understand the problems. Many have ignored the facts surrounding the government's participation in the demise of our domestic manufacturing base. While the issues have been present for years, they took a bizarre turn in February when President Obama signed the Trade Facilitation and Enforcement Act. 
This legislation gave U.S. Customs the ability to prohibit, stop, and enforce a ban on products coming into the United States that have been made with forced or prison labor. The action was well received by all and would appear to have been a move in favor of American products. But the mere enforcement of the law calls into question a huge loophole in the entire Made in USA discussion. Here's the rub. Since it is now illegal to import products made with prison labor, why is it still legal to use prison labor in America? Has our own government just issued a non-compete clause for foreign prisoners, or have they issued a free pass for U.S. prison labor to compete on products that are protected under the very amendment as made in USA? Chauncey, the gardener, would have had a field day with that one, much like his first ride in an automobile when he commented that the view from the window is just like television, only you can see much farther. Our federal government does, in fact, promote, allow, and encourage inmates to assemble garments behind prison's walls under a growing and long-standing program called Unicor. Prisons earn as little as 23 cents an hour working on assembly lines, and their products often compete for business with legitimate government contractors who operate under the very amendment, a law that requires U.S. military uniforms to be made in the U.S., these respectable American companies make apparel and footwear for many branches of the U.S. government and often use the berry business as an anchor to help them run their U.S. factories so they can compete in the global marketplace. Established in 1934 and run by Federal Bureau of Prisons, the Federal Prison Industry, FPI, created Unicor to keep prisoners busy while they are serving time and to reduce the rate of recidivism. But anyone who thinks that these folks are just stamping license plates is simply wrong. They make a lot of products, including all types of wearable apparel. Unicor is a multi-million dollar complex making various items in many locations around the U.S. They claim that inmates who participate in these programs are 24% less likely to return to jail and 14% more likely to, gain, to be gainfully employed. While these numbers sound great to a casual observer, the bigger picture is that five years after release, national statistics indicate 76.6% of prisoners released are re-arrested anyways. Bottom line, this is just a crazy situation and a way to justify taking jobs away from domestic contractors who utilize the Berry Amendment to sell the government and to help support their made-in-USA efforts. I'm just going to read a little bit more of this and then we're going to talk about it. Just like October, Obama said, if we can get this agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, to my desk, then we can help our businesses sell more made-in-America goods and services around the world, and we can help more American workers compete and win. What the president unfortunately didn't mention is that Unicor is aggressively competing with domestic manufacturers by utilizing cheap prison labor. And the Department of Defense is using their services probably in an effort to reduce the cost of their budgets Effectively, while it may be legal, it is definitely hypocritical. If we are planning to grow in the world of global trade, then we have to simultaneously protect our existing domestic manufacturing infrastructure. If not, then how can legitimate American factories with American taxpayers' employees be able to stay in business and participate in this new world economy? The simple truth is they can't, especially if our own government is working against them. You can read the rest of this story 
from the Hill on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook. Any comments, brothers? Man, I mean, this this is the thing people need to wrap their minds around. We we can't be passive, apathetic, lazy towards matters of state. I mean, we're watching a political situation unfold as far as who's going to be the next president. Okay. Politics is public policy. Now, you could have your own religion, but that's more or less going to be like your personal agenda, what you're working on as an individual. But politics is public policy. I mean, how more plain can it be made? This is all a matter of public policy, what the people will allow, what the people accept. When these companies, like we just talked about the GEO Group, can write legislation, then have it delivered by their lobbyists, who are oftentimes on a revolving door policy between being elected officials to working for the GEO Group as a lobbyist to being on the board some kind of way and all the time collecting money for their personal wealth and just carrying legislation that the corporations write directly to the floor of Congress and getting it passed not no filibustering like freedom amendments is filibustering it'll take their stand there and do a week of grandstanding on C-SPAN I'm going to filibuster till we defeat this because this is for the people you're foolish, you're lying because what's for the people is to stop slavery and when you allow these prisons, these private prisons, and these slavery corporations to bribe our elected officials, and then they all bipartisan go and vote, and we don't ever see it on C-SPAN. We don't see nobody standing there all night long doing a, a 72-hour filibuster. See, that's all grandstanding. You don't see anybody protesting the laws that were written by these people and passed by our Congress that what Max just got to reading to you. Nobody filibustered that. Nobody fought that. That was bipartisan supported. And it's in place. It's costing us jobs here. It's costing us lives here. It's costing us people going back and forth to jail. Twelve and a half million people in and out the jail system every, every year just rotating through it. And all those that can't afford to buy their way out stuck in prisons. And when you get in there, guess what you're doing? Slave labor. I mean, policy, man. This is policy. And they call it prison labor, but it's not prison labor. It's slave labor. And we all know it says right in the Constitution what they are. The, crim- the, the prisons call them inventory. We right. know what's going on. It's prison slave labor. It's simple as that. Right. It's all about changing the um, narrative. And the narrative has been set, you know, following the Civil War, that slavery was abolished. But, again, all one needs to do is read the 13th Amendment. I, I don't see um, Judge Roy Moore out there in Alabama taping that to the wall, you know, of his courtroom or whatnot, the 13th Amendment, where then people's eyes will really be open to what they are faced, what they are watching, you know, the slave auction blocks and what have you. And but I mean, uh, going back to what Johanan was saying about public policy, yes, politics is public policy. Slavery, you know, politics is how you set public po- policy. Slavery was a public policy. 
All right. Back then it was dictated by kings and nobles and whatnot. But then after the revolution, the the enslavers like Jefferson and all of them, you know, and, and even in, before them in the colonies, you know, with the governorships and, and whatnot in Virginia, they passed the slave codes, which first introduced white supremacy into law as a matter of law. That's all public policy. And so what we face today um, is just an extension of, of slavery just in a modern form. Given the opportunity, uh, nations and governments have shown that they will always choose slavery over paying somebody to do a job. The reason that America has lost so much of its industry, the reason so many of our major cities like Detroit and Flint and Patterson have been decimated by the lack and the loss of manufacturing jobs is because those jobs went out to third world nations who were willing to use slave labor. They were willing to do like they're doing Haiti right now and pay people 30 cents an hour to do a job that somebody else was getting paid $20 an hour to do. Now, we're, we have an opportunity... Max, 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 and, can I interject right there on Haiti? Because I just yeah. found this out the other day. Um, Hillary Clinton's role in the public policy. Now, what is the United States government, the State Department's business, is it of between garment factories or textile workers in Haiti and what the minimum wage is in Haiti? Now, I heard that they were striking for... 61 cents a day not $15 an hour 61 cents a day and Hillary Clinton sided with the corporations and and got it down to 31 cents a day I think they were making something like 21 cents a day before that she learned that that from her husband he did the same thing to all of the Caribbean uh, economies during his presidency he orchestrated boycotting of the bananas and of the the fruits and vegetables that the people was surviving off of from those uh, communities he boycotted that and uh randall robinson went on a on a hunger strike that uh brought some attention to it back in the day i'd have to get the details i'll find a link and post it on the page so people can kind of catch up to that story but that's a clinton that's a clinton tactic during that time of his presidency he basically boycotted those islands and their their ability to provide for themselves that's all they have and he he effectively put a boycott against them and what he was able to do was get his his friends and his donors that own and operate companies like Chiquita Bananas able to get them prime real estate in the market where they could sell and control the market and drive them them you know predominantly non-white folks and economies right on out of business that's destabilization man that's an act of war Yes, it is. It's treason. So that's where it's she treason. comes from. Her husband did that, and she shook his hand and told him to do, you know, agreed with it. So of course she did that as a Secretary of State. I, I can't even believe we're at the state that we're at. That these are the choices, and this is what's going on. I don't, I don't know, man. Let me hush because I ain't about to tell folks what to do. But I you don't know, see how you don't hear the voice on the wind telling you what to do. Shit. What I was saying earlier is that now we're presented with an opportunity to say to the world, we will not pay slave wages for our products, goods, and services. We don't want you to put your people into slavery for 31 cents an hour in Haiti or 10 cents an hour in Mexico or 4 cents an hour in Asia under brutal conditions so we can have 
a better iPod or a better cell phone and a cheaper cell phone. We don't want that. We can say no and ban those imports. If you're not paying people living wages, then we're not buying your goods. Instead, our president has decided to compete with slave labor abroad and start using prison slave labor in America to create the made in America goods. When you start competing with slave labor, it only goes down to the point where you're no longer even paying them. You're just giving them their daily life for working. Mm -hmm. They don't work. They lose that life. It's a mess, man. Top to bottom, top to bottom. And it, it's just a thing, like I said, I mean, like we've all said, you know, people, you're going to have to be active. It can't just be uh, us on the radio and some, you know, some of the uh, folks that are doing things in a couple of political positions here and there. And and somebody you hear about at an activist meeting or a rally or something that shows out and gets some attention for a 24-hour news cycle. It can't be these intermittent uh, bursts of getting attention but it's not really changing the direction of the ship. See, the whole ship of the United States of America is is still got the wheel set in one direction, slavery. That's where this country is determined to go. It is it is influencing the European countries and other white supremacist ran countries. Australia comes to mind. It is influencing Africa. African countries all up and out th uh, throughout the continent are being influenced by private prisons modern day slavery all legislated and made legal by political policy and it's generating billions and even trillions of dollars the largest employer on the entire continent of Africa is a prison company all of the prisons in the country of Australia are private prisons all throughout England and other European countries private prisons have begun to take over their entire even incarceration Haiti. system Haiti the same thing I mean I mean, Come this is what people. this is what Dr. King was talking about in terms of apathy. The only way for modern slavery to still exist, let alone expand uh, globally, you know, um, in 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 the legal form. We ain't talking about the illegal form. We ain't talking about kidnap little boys from the village, forced to pick cocoa and, and all of that. We're talking about legalized slavery the money's laundered through the banks and and what ha I mean it, it's not even really money laundering cuz it's legal it's all legal right, and and, right. and they pay taxes on that so the united states just like when it was first born collecting taxes from uh, uh profits from slavery and what have you so i mean it's apathy it, it, it that's really what it is. So it is important to educate people to what's really going on because of the the uh, programming since birth that slavery was abolished. Come on, guys! I only realized that they didn't abolish it five years ago, and I'll be fifty in November. So that's forty five years. You know, well, we'll 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 say forty years. When I went to school at five years old, they've been teaching me. Uh, and along with everybody else that slavery was abolished and hiding this this great evil so you know um, I have to give people the masses knowing that they are victims in that way um, a little bit of slack uh, because of the mass you know propaganda programming on this issue but you know once you do know and you come to that truth I don't see how you could really be apathetic. You can't really be that so only concerned about self 
in a selfish manner that you don't look at. I mean, just think, you know, when people comment on slavery in past tense and they talk about it in the context of the visual they got from roots and whatnot. Well, what if it wasn't, or, or, or maybe, you know, the abolitionist profiles, maybe they get a visual in their mind when we share, you know, Nat Turner a profile or or Gabriel Prosser or Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth and, and maybe they get a visual uh, then so but once you come to that knowledge I don't see how you can be apathetic you know uh, to me you know to paraphrase what Dr. King was saying you know it's like you know you don't consider yourself evil because you sitting on the fence you know what I'm saying you're not profiting you're not investing in it but at the same time you see this wrong and you don't speak out against it it, it, it still seems like there's a place in hell for people like that you know um, Scotty if you don't mind maybe you can do the next story for me because uh, my computer is acting up a little bit here and that would be the Colorado voters uh, regarding the 13th amendment exception clause coming up in November well, while you pull that up which is our new abolitionist radio's main page I want to make a couple of comments I personally know a lot of teachers I know the teacher of the year in Columbia, South Carolina she's like my sister, good friend and I know a lot of good friends who are educators and you know what I would expect from you when you hear me tell you that the teachers union has a hundred million dollars invested in private prisons and that you're retiring based on how many of your students go to prison, I would expect you to call up your union representative and say, I'm disgusted and appalled by this, that my money is invested in building private prisons and I want my money taken out. What's stopping you from doing that? It don't take a whole lot. Your union rep probably don't even know anything about it. They probably don't know anything about it. But you can start to chain the command. You can start spreading the word that you don't want this going on with your money. What's stopping you other than cowardice? You don't want to cause any waves? Is that what it is? I expect you to do something. I expect you to say something. You don't need to go down to white to the White House and complain to the president. Just call up your union rep and say, did you know that the teachers union has $100 million invested in prisons? I don't want my money invested in prisons. I want it out now. That's all you got to do. Well, we have an opportunity to change some of this now coming up in Colorado. I want to give a big shout out to Lee Woods, who has been pushing this movement to take the exception clause out of the state's constitution as well as the federal constitution. We've seen at least four different attempts in our career here on New Abolitionist Radio, and each of them has failed. This may be the first time that a state is able to take that exception clause out and be the second state out of 50 that doesn't have an exception clause for slavery. The only other state that doesn't have an exception clause for slavery is Rhode Island. Yeah, well, it, uh, are you saying that Mr. Wood is personally uh, connected to this Colorado initiative or movement to remove it? Is that where he's living now? Well, no, I don't I don't think that's that's not what I'm saying. It, what I'm saying is for the past uh, three decades that I'm aware of, he's been oh, pushing yeah, to yeah, get yeah. these well, and organizing to get these exception clauses taken out. And now he's got a real movement behind him where people are actually trying to get this done, and he's tutoring them to do it. So he may be directly connected to this, and he may not, but I know that he has influenced this movement. 
Well, actually, uh, Mr. Wood had the first abolitionist program on Black Talk Radio Network. This program was actually on prior to New Abolitionist Radio, so we're talking about going back six or seven years. So he is an alumnus of Black Talk Radio um, Network, and so um, there was some creative differences. He decided to go his way. And I decided to go the way of New Abolitionist Radio, you know, but uh, still got much love for him. And uh, certainly, um, I think he is probably the one, you know. Now I recall uh, the one that caused me to take a look at the 13th Amendment when I say just, you know, as I recall saying before, just for some reason I wanted to look this up. But no, that brother planted that seed in my mind, so now I'm recalling correctly, so... Um, I've to- we talked about easy, this, Scotty. huh? It's just that easy. All somebody got to do is tell another person, and look what comes of it. Somebody told you, and look what we have: five years of new abolitionist radio with all the successes and influences that have come from that, simply because somebody told you the truth. Right, right, right. So, um, you know, we have talked about using this as a strategy. In year in the five years of, of using looking at the cannabis legalization initiatives, of course, I've interviewed people from law enforcement against prohibition, uh, former cops and whatnot. When certain ballot initiatives, like in California, Colorado, those were voter initiatives. Did no po- uh, politician or legislator introduce no bill? No. These were the people wrote the bill, wrote the legislation, uh, got enough signatures to get it on a statewide ballot. And so that's how that happened. Totally circumventing. Now, every state don't allow you to do that. But we did talk about uh, using this as a tactic for removing the 13th Amendment from the uh, state constitutions, as you know, during that five years, how, how long did it take us? A year and a half, maybe two years? No, maybe just a year uh, to do all 50 states and each on each weekly program and read each and yeah. every state constitution as it pertained to slavery or involuntary servitude, where we found what? 90% of it mirrored the 13th Amendment? Uh, every state uh, has some kind of language. A very few don't have any language at all. I think it was about 20% didn't have any language regarding slavery and just uh, referred to the 13th Amendment. The others had their own language, and they used three particular words to do it, except, otherwise, and unless. Those were the key words that each of these states used to allow slavery. Slavery is abolished except for. Slavery is, is abolished unless. Slavery is abolished uh for one way or another, they found a way to put that caveat into their constitution. The loophole. And Colorado has it in theirs, except otherwise and unless. Right. So I, I guess we'll go ahead and take an early break, and then on the other side, I'll read uh, an excerpt or two from that story. And we do want to open up the phone lines for uh, listeners to share their uh, opinions, experiences, and what have you. I know we got listeners in Colorado, you know, uh, they tune in to the Black Talk Radio Network. Um, so that telephone number is 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549-032-POUND. Hit star 6 and 1 to comment on air. So we'll go to an early break, Max, and then uh, go to uh, that story on Colorado. 
Sounds good. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Scotty Reed, Johanna Laya, and Max Parthas. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. No, I'm not a writer. Okay. Black Talk Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we're going to get into our story regarding abolishing the exception clause from Colorado's Constitution, which allows for legalized slavery. And Colorado is recently, in addition to that, just admitted that they were running debtors' prisons and had to pay up $100,000 to their victims. So we know what Colorado is doing. There are counties in Colorado that exist only because of prisons. Their number one industry is prisons, and most of the people employed are employed through the prisons. So now we come to an opportunity to end that type of exploitation. Colorado voters had this opportunity in 2016. Well, they have an opportunity to uh, uh, provide a linchpin to then start eradicating you know, it's not right. going to be a matter of just passing a law and then they just going to stop what they're doing. No, you then have to dismantle it using that law. You know, that's how you do that. Um, but let's go ahead and uh, also, you know, oh, again, we five years of reporting on these type of stories, providing you documentation that you could, in fact, use as documentation. These news reports that we do um, to trigger a federal complaint you know, in, in violation of civil rights and, and constitutional rights. But see, this is, again, why the 13th Amendment is so important is because when you designate people as slaves, as they do in this state constitution presently in Colorado, as they do in the United States federal uh, uh, con- constitution, then, you know, uh, uh, what can you say? You can't claim civil rights violate. You're a damn slave. You can't claim, oh, you violate my First Amendment, my Fourth Amendment, this or that. You already got that designation as a slave, and we know slaves have no rights, and they further got stripped of their rights in the 1996 uh, legislation passed by the Republicans and their favorite uh, tag team, uh, the Clintons, um, you know, they love to work with them Republicans. And so they strip prisoners further of their uh, access to the courts to complain about the inhumane conditions and whatnot. But again, shout out to the Colorado prisoners who over the years have staged uprisings, rebellions, work stoppages, strikes, hunger strikes, whatever uh, uh, tactic, as Malcolm said, by any means necessary. And, and many of these uh, occurred in geo run facilities uh you know the uh immigrants and so again opportunity for coalition uh building on the issue of 21st century modern slavery and human trafficking uh because it ha- it happens to it, it's no longer just you know codified to the point where they only target africans well that'll be you know predominantly you know who they target and who winds up ultimately in slavery but there's still other huge numbers of different demographics that's in there so slavery is slavery you know what whatever uh, color you want to paint it uh it's wrong so this is an excerpt from the colorado story 
Uh, Colorado voters this fall will have a chance. Uh, give me just a moment. We'll have a chance to finally put an end to legalized slavery. Like many other states, references to legal slavery still exist in Colorado's Constitution. Article 2 of the state constitution says that there shall never be in this state either slavery or involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime where other parties shall have been duly convicted. Basically, word for word, the 13th Amendment. Basically, word for word. And, and see, it come no on slavery. so strong. Scotty, hold on, Scotty. Yeah. If I can interrupt. You just said no slavery, right? And then you said except for a situation where you can have slavery. Yeah, it's like an oxymoron or something, man. A paradox. I, I don't know what the... The English word I'm looking for to describe this hypocrisy, uh, this double speak, and what have you. But yeah, just like the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, I read it again. They see they come on so strong, and then like when they when they like in the the, the corporate media, and I've documented this with a video. Um, the corporate media, like when they had the celebration of the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment, and they would just put this part, for example, if they were, I'm a Colorado writer and I want to say talk about this myth that uh, Colorado abolished slavery, if I want to promote that myth, then I would say something like, there should never be in this state either slavery or involuntary servitude, dot, dot, dot. Colorado abolished slavery back whenever they, uh, you know, they put this in their constitution and what have you. And I've seen the media do that. And they totally leave out the exception clause. We, you know, we saw that fraud of the little ceremony they had uh, with Speaker Ryan doing most of the organizing in Washington, D.C., celebrating the 150th anniversary of the passage of the 13th Amendment. President Obama, keynote speaker, they didn't even have a, not, not even a, a banner, you know, on the wall with the text of the 13th Amendment, you know, because, you know, if people read it, if they got at least a uh, I would say a 12th grade education or reading level that they would perceive just off of the text that slavery was not abolished. You know, they can still put you in slavery if, you know, you violate this law, that law. Hence, like, you know, you referenced earlier, uh, Johanna, the black codes, and now it's the drug codes. Now it's, you know, other codes. Uh, more codified codes and what have you, but we still see the data shows clearly who they are targeting. That's black people, that's non-white people, that's poor people, uh, period, like we're seeing in Harnett County, North Carolina right now. So the measure, again in Colorado, Senate Concurrent Resolution 16-006 received unanimous support from both state Veterans and Military Affairs Committee in the House and Senate and unanimous votes from the Senate and House which passed the measure Wednesday. The resolution which will appear on the November 2016 ballot strikes everything after the word servitude, leaving simply there shall never be in this state either slavery or involuntary servitude. Period. So, man... Shout out to, I mean, we're talking about unanimously. These people decided that, yes. hey, it's wrong. This is actually legalized slavery by law. 
you know, so let's remove that exception clause. And that's what we've been pushing for for the five years we've been on air, uh, soon going on six years we've been on air, uh, focusing on the U.S. Constitution's 13th Amendment, but then we took the time on, you know, this weekly program every week to focus on each and every individual state we might even look at some of the colonies they got because it does say, you know, territories under their jurisdiction. So that apply to Guam, that apply to Puerto Rico, that apply to the Virgin Islands that, you know, they are occupying and what have you. So, I mean, this is historic, man. This is historic. Really, this is historic sure. on, on a real level. You know what I'm saying? This is, I mean, this could be the battlefront where if they still keep trying to practice privatized, I mean, really, you could file lawsuits to kick the GO group out of the state. You know? Yes. So, man. Challenge the legality of what they're doing after that. Right, right. So, great job to. It's not a switch that we click off, it's a domino you push over that knocks the rest of them down. So, great job to the abolitionists out there in Colorado. Uh, we don't know where you got this idea from. We don't know if, you know, we might have uh, cross paths on the, on the Internet or something like that. Or if you've been touched by New Abolitionist Radio. But I do know we are the only program for six, going on six years, that have consistently put this issue out front. You know, amazingly, I was talking to Brother Ken Williams about a week ago when Johanan introduced us and we had this conversation and he asked me <clears throat> directly, what would I change the 13th Amendment to? And like verbatim, I put what Colorado put, period. There should be no more slavery or involuntary servitude in this state ever, period. <laughs> and, you know, the question got around then to uh, custodial care. And I think he was trying to express that for some reason, this is what they have that language in there for. So prisons can take control of a person's body because they've lost their freedom, and that's called custodial care. But that doesn't say custodial care in the Constitution. It says slavery. And you can focus on the indentured servitude uh, or voluntary servitude part all you want to. It says slavery. So Colorado's getting that out. That's a big deal. And I hope that yeah, they it, are it is. successful it, with this. It really didn't hit me to how big of a deal it was till I was like three quarters way through the story. This is really historic as we talked about the uh um uh, you know, uh, Reverend Ahmad, how you Abaju, how you pronounce his name? I'm sorry. Moja Ajabu. Ajabu. Uh, uh, yes, from out of Indiana being the first abolitionist congressman to run or a person seeking congressional office to run on an abolitionist platform and of course he was calling for the, mo- the removal of the accept. so this is again now we have seen uh, history on a state level you know this is the biggest movement we've seen since the uh, let's call it secession of hostilities over slavery uh, during the Civil War, this is the biggest movement I, I we have to say we've witnessed since uh, then. Well, there's another big movement going on, which is one of our stories tonight, which is you know one of the reasons why I wanted to concentrate on this theme of the battles that are going on. And that is the fight in San Francisco that is showing that this bail money system is unconstitutional. I mean, in the whole world, 
in the entire freaking world, only two countries use bail bonding. Only two. That's us and uh, South Korea. Us and uh, it's not South Korea. It's uh, I can't think of the other one right now. I'll get it to you later. But there's only two countries, and we're one of them. They use bail bonding and bail systems. Every other country sees this as exploitive, as illegal, as immoral. But we're still doing it, and it's a multi-billion-dollar industry. And in, Colorado, in um, San Francisco, they're fighting that right now. And again, that could be another domino. If they win, then state after state will start following the same thing. We hope. We hope that's how it goes down. We hope so, brother. All we can do is is initiate. Uh, we can't do everything. But from here, we can we can at least inspire and point people in the right directions. Johanan, do you want to cover that story? Uh, and listen, my computer's acting real weird, weird today, and I'm unable to open up all my pages for some reason. Yeah, that's no problem. Um, so, as uh, as you said, the, the or Max said, the uh, story is two billion dollar bail in bail bond industry threatened by lawsuit against San Francisco. So this is from KQED uh, News, so a local news outlet, uh, just a couple of days ago, May 6th. So, you know, uh, again, just we hope that we can get, like you said, the domino effect going in all of these cases. You know, bring this out and get a precedent set and let's start seeing change unfold across, you know, across the country in policy. Says uh, last year, Carlos Valiente found himself in a place he'd never been before, San Francisco's county jail. Uh, he goes on to talk about how crazy it was, and he didn't want to be there. He was arrested on a number of charges for which his bail was set at seventy thousand dollars. As a construction worker making fourteen dollars an hour, he couldn't afford to bail himself, uh, bail himself out. So instead, he called one of the bail bond agencies whose flyers he saw inside the jail. Uh, they asked him, uh, "How much money do you have on you?" And uh, other general questions like, "How much do you make?" How much can you get a hold of right now? He said his mother scraped together enough money for the bail agent who agreed to get him out of jail for $1,000 up front and then 6000 more to be paid in installments or 10% of the total bail amount, which is the standard bail fee. In return for that fee, uh, they posted what's called a surety bond with the court, and then if he had failed to show up, he would have to pay the full 70000 or the bail, uh, bail company would have to pay the full 70000 The for-profit bail system... Uh, that this gentleman used to get out of jail as part of a larger system known as money bail, which enables many defendants to be released before their cases go to court as long as they post property or cash as collateral. So, again, we see whether it's from the original uh, articles of of, uh, the Constitution and the personal memoirs of uh, founding father Thomas Jefferson, as uh, Brother Scotty Reed informed us of a, a while back, uh, where he's given some of the first mentions of the word capitalism in his personal memoirs, uh, or if you look, you know, even further into all the way down to Ferguson is America and how we've shown over the last couple of years since the death of Michael Brown, uh, state by state by state, how every municipality, every state system, every county system, every federal system of so-called law enforcement in this country is only in place for one purpose to generate revenue. So the money bail system, as they said, enables many defendants to be released before their case goes to court, as long as they post property or cash or collateral. 
I mean, that's pretty straightforward what the whole thing is. What they want is to get your money. Next week, federal judge in Oakland will hear arguments that money bail is currently, impl- is currently implemented in San Francisco's jails violates the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. So see, here we go again. We're trying to present the information and do more than just piss and moan about, oh, this is wrong. They shouldn't do this. We're showing you how constitutionally these things are wrong. And so, you know, kudos to these people who are doing this on their own, who are paying attention, who are listening, who are doing what they can to call out this system for the corrupt and criminal system that it is. The equal protection uh, under the clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution prohibits states from denying any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. In other words, the laws of the state must treat an individual in the same manner as others in similar conditions and circumstances. A violation would occur, for example, if the state prohibited an individual from entering into an employment contract because he or she was a member of a particular race. That's just one example. Equal protection clause is not intended to provide equality, quote-unquote, among individuals or classes, but only equal application of the law. The result, therefore, of a law is not relevant so long as there is no discrimination in its application. By denying states the ability to discriminate, the Equal Protection Clause of the uh, Constitution is a crucial protection of all people's civil rights. So this is saying if you're poor and you can't pay bail, you ain't getting the same treatment as people that's got money to bail out or people who can get money raised for them like killer cops and get bailed out like Michael Schlager who's out right now like Darren Wilson got millions of dollars raised for him, like several of these cops get these GoFundMe accounts and the people anonymously or publicly, there's some trolls that will give some money and put their name out there, but anonymously you can just collect a million dollars because it's a fundraiser and don't nobody know where the money came from, police union. So uh, they say that that's roughly 420,000 pretrial defendants who are stuck behind bars in city and county jails who haven't had their day in the court. Because more than you, half the U.S. population has never been convicted of a crime. The people that are in jail, more than half of them haven't even been convicted, but they don't have to bail. So that's what this whole story is trying to say. They're proving that it's illegal constitutionally to treat people this way if they don't have money. More than 60% of people, in fact, in California's jails haven't been convicted. So they're there because the crime which they were charged with doesn't qualify for bail in some cases, which is a minor amount of cases. But most people are there because they just can't afford to pay it. So we look at a case like, I mean, this is in California, but like a really high-profile case like Khalif Browder, rest in peace, where this kid was picked up after school. Before his parents even knew he was in jail, he had already been in jail for two or three days and charged with falsely charged with some kind of theft and assault and stealing something from this guy or whatever. This kid spent three years in jail because they never could come up with the bail. When he finally did get out, when they found out he was in there and the story started getting out and he had to be released or whatever, he didn't make it another year before he killed himself behind the complications of being assaulted. He never confessed as far as I know that he was actually raped, but obviously he was assaulted many times, had to fight for his life, like basically to the death several times. I mean, it was a hellacious situation. He spent a couple of years in solitary confinement. This is the common treatment of people that have not been found guilty of any crime. They have to pay bail. So this is what this case is saying. Sorry for going you off know, on the but I know. want people to get the idea. You know, Look at Sandra Bland, for instance. Remember Sandra the conversation Bland. she had on the phone? She had to get $5,000 in bail up. And guess where she had to go to? The mm-hmm. bail money system. Yes. She had to try to reach out to them to get her family to collect some money together to try to get her out, which never occurred. She never had the chance to get out. But she was being exploited from the very moment that cop pulled her over. You know, this right. also was a big aspect of the Ferguson 
uh, report as well, where you had different uh, towns, jails uh, cooperating with e- e- you know each other and playing the shell game, you know, with people. And where, you know, they be in one jail, the family go get the money to bail them out. Oh, we didn't send them to this other jail. Now you got to go pay more money to get them out of another jail and playing the, you know, the jail shell game and what have you. So that was a big aspect. But also what we're talking about, you know, people be talking about the lives ruined from people sentenced to prison for, let's say, you know, a life sentence for a, a, a small amount of drugs, but think about the lives that are destroyed. We're already talking about people in poverty who leave, live and might be living paycheck to paycheck, living hand to mouth, as they say. And you get caught up on a charge, you know, and as you stated, technically, you know, constitutionally, you're innocent until proven guilty, but because you can't bail out, then you might lose your job, you can't, you might lose your children to social service if you're a single parent or whatnot and don't have a support structure i mean that destroys lives right there just putting people in jail that can't afford to get out and then the next thing you you know i'm sure there are plenty of times where then the state ends up dismissing the case the prosecutor dismisses the case maybe six months later maybe a year later violating your right to a so-called speedy trial or your so-called right to a speedy uh trial and what have you so i I mean it, it really does uh disproportionately impact poor people and we've seen it all over so to me that's another you know Ferguson is America story or, or what town is this or what California is Ferguson whatever we you know it's all over slavery is all being practiced all over you know again going back to the story with Colorado if what all they're needing is the governor's signature right and so once that's in law now these civil rights organizations these legal groups can then be armed with a code to then dismantle you know slavery on if if on a piece by piece basis you know so i hope they're successful and i really don't give a damn how many people are going to lose their jobs as bail bondsmen i hope they lose their jobs see when it comes to slavery there are many systems involved all working together the bails bonds area or bail money area is just one. And I think we can all agree, all the listeners can agree, that if you're giving the same amount of bail for the same crime to all the same people, then the wealthy are going to benefit from that. If you tell a person who only makes $10,000 a year that their bail is $10,000, very likely they're not going to be able to get out on bail. But the wealthy guy can just put that 10000 up and walk out without a second notice. So that shows you right there that it's only in place to help those who have money. Indeed. And that's that's really where the story uh, basically gets, you know, gets its grip and kind of takes it to an end where it's just saying uh, the issue is, the, is uh, policy judgment or whether we want to use, like, state programs or private entities as uh, – the American Bail Coalition president says Jeffrey Clayton. So he's looking at the commercial bail industry as being, you know, it's already his revenue stream as his job, as his career. So of course he represents that interest, but they're trying to present the alternative. Like we've already said before, the only other place that even uses the bail system is the Philippines. So clearly, the re- 
So the rest of the, the planet clearly has systems in place that are either superior or at the very least not inferior to what we're doing here. So how can you just say if we lose if we lose the bail system, the system will fall in chaos. We got to have some kind of way to monitor this and make money off of this. That's from his personal interest. But just like with police shootings and just like with all these other things we've revealed, there is no oversight. It's people making money hand over fist with no oversight, no reporting, no numbers, no think tanks that are dis dissecting uh, how to dismantle this or what it's even doing if it's benefiting the, the general public because these people are making money in the dark. It says there's little evidence showing how well or how poorly the current system even works. Courts do not track how often people who have bailed out fail to show back up. They don't track how many people bail out who go out and commit any other crimes. According to the San Francisco public defender Jeff Adashi, poor defendants pay a high price as a result of the current system. He says many of his clients lose their jobs. We've told you this for years. You get caught in this system, you don't make it to work, guess where you, you don't have a job. So all your bills fall in the rear immediately. If you're on child support, you're like a Walter Scott, you're done. Why do you think Walter Scott got out the car and ran? He knew if he spent the night in jail, he couldn't miss work the next day, and whatever he was in arrears for already, he was going to get even further because he had already been put in jail for months at a time and lost several other jobs behind the system. So you're going to lose your job, lose your home, lose custody of your children, all while you wait in jail. He says uh, Dashi points to research showing that defendants are less able to put together an effective legal defense from behind bars, even if they're innocent. You in jail, you don't have no resources available to you. Sure, you might have your mama, your sister, a couple friends, somebody to care about you and try to do some stuff for you, but you can do more to defend yourself as a free person with access to Internet, access to libraries and resources, make phone calls, do what you got to do to protect yourself. When you're in jail, you're getting three hots in a cot, and if you're in some of these jurisdictions, you're doing a little slave labor during the day too, or you're going in solitary. You don't get nothing. Judges know that if you keep somebody in jail, they're more likely to plead guilty, and their case will be processed faster. Now we've already told you about this. 94% state cases, plea agreements. 97% federal cases, plea agreements. Plea agreements come as a result of prosecutors on every level, every level. The municipal court prosecutor that, got, that they caught you in a speed trap, all of them are using charges stacking. They'll take whatever they arrested you for and throw 50 more things at you, and when they meet with you, they're going to show you a long laundry list of things that they will charge you with and throw at the jury or throw at your trial and make it where you're going to get caught for something. A person that didn't even do anything is going to go ahead and agree to a plea because they've lost their job, they're losing their income, they're losing their home on the outside world, they're locked inside jail, they don't have an adequate defense, they're looking at all these charges being stacked against them. Damn, man, it's like a slippery slope straight to hell. I mean, example, you're a factory worker putting bottle tops on perfume bottles all day long. That's what you do. You're barely making ends meet. For some reason... You got a warrant for your arrest, you did a with speeding, whatever it may be, you end up in jail. What do you think is going to happen to your life after that? You can't get out, you don't have enough money, you can't get a lawyer. They don't even provide you with lawyers now in certain states like Louisiana, as we've been reporting, you can't even get a freaking lawyer anymore. So your life is just thrown away and you're not prepared. 
You're, you're a bottle capper. That's what you've been doing. You don't even have a high school diploma. And now you're up against people who have spent every waking day of their life doing nothing but convicting people. This is what their professionals at. And when they tell you, we're going to get 100 years on your ass if you don't take this plea bargain for 10 years. You can say, well, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. And they're going to say, that's besides the point. We're going to give you 100 years or sign this paper. Guess what people who are putting bottle caps on perfume bottles are going to do? They're not going to try to fight somebody like that. They can't win. It's a losing battle. And this is why we have 97% convictions through plea bargains, which eradicates any Sixth Amendment that we may have had. Your right to a fair trial before a jury, a fair and a speedy trial before a jury of your peers is completely out the window. Completely. You know, they could easily solve this problem by using monitors, by giving people ankle bracelets or wrist bracelets that monitors their movement before their trial, particularly for nonviolent offenders who you don't think are going to be risked instead of a money bail. And all you got to do is look at a computer screen with little red dots and go, hey, that red dot just crossed that line. Send a cop over there. That's all you got to do. And you nobody know what, uses anything. You know what, though, Max? This is how deep it really is. And this, hopefully, people listening can understand. I'm not trying to talk over your head, not, not you personally, but like over the listeners' heads here. The way that that comes to pass is the private prison companies like Geo Group, who bought BI, mm -hmm. who developed the ankle bracelet to monitor uh, folks. Geo Group would have to get a victory on a legislative level to make a change like that. That's how screwed we are in the system you're going to have to go to one slaver to get his terms to improve the terms of another slaver do, you, do mm. people see what the hell we're dealing with to get something as simple as remove the bail system and to be able to use those monitors like what you're saying which is perfectly humane and makes sense to do it is going to take geo group bribing your politicians geo group writing legislation Geo Group delivering that legislation to the floor of Congress and making sure it gets passed bipartisan. And when that happens, and they're able to put the bail system, so the bail system has its own unions. As this guy that was in the story earlier was talking about, this Clayton, he represents the American Bail Coalition. So now it's going to be a money war between American Bail Coalition, a, a money war between like uh, uh, unions like the, uh, uh, what is it, the. Uh, uh, in oh, the incarceration uh, vendors union or whatever that we've talked about that before, where it's yeah. an entire an entire coalition of all the vendors that provide commissary and, and the the phones and the video uh, visitation and the clothing and the, everything that they do to make money in the prisons. Those people come together in powerful unions and lobby. So you're going to see a, a war like on them old Godzilla movies where the monsters would just come and start fighting or whatever, and the people just like, damn, what's going to happen? You're going to have to have a coalition of the, of the bail system fighting against Geo Group, fighting against the, the Correctional Vendors Association. This is what we're dealing with, people. Damn, I mean, damn, man. This is what we're dealing with for public policy. This is what influences you getting pulled over like Sandra Bland. This is what influences you got two tag lights over your license plate, the left one and the right one. And the right one is a little dim, or maybe it's out. So you get pulled over because your tag light is out. 
and now I need to see this, I need to see that. Oh, I think I smell something in the air. I think you seem like you're incarcerated. Oh, we found a warrant. It ain't you, but we're going to run you to jail right now until we find out a week later, oh, it wasn't you, a mistake. While we got you in there, we're going to beat you, rape you, torture you. You might end up dead in custody. This is a slavery system. All interactions with slave catchers, bounty hunters, slave masters, plantations, slave, all of this is interaction with death. You're promised torture. You, you got a likelihood you're going to end up dead. If you survive, you will be enslaved and you will perform labor for free or for slave wages. People, there is no middle ground in this. We cannot tolerate no aspect of this. All of it leads to death. Amen to that, brother. We're coming up on our, our next break. And when we come back after the break, we're going to go into our 21st century rider of the Underground Railroad. It's uh, another heartbreaking story. We have them here every week, but it's also celebratory because someone has gotten their freedom. Um, and what you just said there, Johanna, reminded me of what uh, Frederick Douglass said in his speech called, I denounced the so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud, where he said he was expected to tell the whole truth, the unfettered truth, and nothing but the truth. And that's what you're getting here a new abolitionist radio and we'll be right back after these messages you are tuned in to the black talk radio network for podcasts and live program scheduling visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we're going to get into our 21st century rider of the Underground Railroad. Yes, we do have an Underground Railroad, bringing people to freedom. We don't have a North to go to, but we do have an Underground Railroad. This one comes out of the Huffington Post and is titled, Louisiana Prisoner Freed After 41 Years of an Unconstitutional Life Sentence. Notice that word, unconstitutional, has been prevalent throughout everything we've been talking about here. These are laws or constitutional violations that can be proven and have been proving, proven, and uh, they are prevalent throughout the entire prison society. A Louisiana man walked free from the state's notorious Angola prison late on Friday after serving 41 years of an unconstitutional life sentence over the shooting death of a white high school student during a violent and racially charged chapter in the state's fight to segregate schools. The high-profile case of Gary Tyler, 57, ended when he entered a court uh, guilty plea and was sentenced to 21 years, just over half of the time served, and told he could go home Friday, according to a statement released on behalf of Tyler and his attorneys. Tyler is among a generation of prisoners who faced harsh conditions and years or even decades in solitary confinement for convictions during racially charged events in Louisiana. Angola is considered among the toughest of the state's prisons, once a part of the Deep South Plantation and known for seething racial tensions and harsh treatments of inmates. At age 16, in 1974, Tyler was the youngest person on Louisiana's death row, where an all-white jury sent Tyler, who is black, to die for the slaying of a 13-year-old Thomas Weber, a fellow Destrian high school student in St. Charles Parish in southern Louisiana. Tyler was aboard a bus filled with black students who were passing an unruly crowd of white students when Weber was shot. The statement said, police found a gun on the bus 
and Tyler was charged with capital murder and tried as an adult. After his death sentence, black and white students who testified against him recanted their stories. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals called his conviction fundamentally unfair and said he was never given the right to the presumption of innocence, but he never received a new trial. In 1976, his death sentence was commuted to life after the state's mandatory death penalty was ruled unconstitutional. In the following two decades, the Louisiana Board of Pardons and Paroles voted three times to lessen his sentence. Still, Tyler served eight years in solitary Wow, eight years in solitary confinement and more than 30 years in the general population where he became a mentor and a leader. His case drew national attention as an example of the unfair convictions and over-the-top sentencing and treatment of minorities in the Louisiana justice system at the time. In 2012, life without parole for juvenile offenders was also ruled unconstitutional. And earlier this year, a court decided the ruling should be retroactive, giving prosecutors a legal avenue to reduce Tyler's sentence without a guilty plea on Friday. We here at New Abolitionist Radio welcome you to freedom, brother. Welcome. Salute. Salute, man. People need to understand what it, what it takes to be a soldier for real, man. A real soldier. Now, sure, he maybe maybe that's not the route it would have taken had it not been, you know, kind of some of that Solomon Northrop, you know, till you end up a slave, then slavery ain't so serious. But, you know, if you could survive this, I know that you got to be changed. And and I, I want to uh, make a call out to the abolitionists uh, that are already active and listening and learning and growing and you know making moves in this or what have you. I want to just uh, make a call out. Uh, to all of you to start reaching out to these people that we feature on these underground railroad survivor stories on these people that are getting released and you know whether they're getting million dollar settlements or not just the fact that this person has been thoroughly baptized in the blood and suffering of modern day slavery this is a person that you should be able to to very easily Convince of what happened to them and discuss with them modern day slavery and you can add abolitionists out of these people so if you can, if you've got connections to these people you can some kind of way reach out to these folks I mean we make our efforts or what have you but all of you listening have the same opportunity reach out to these folks and, and get them up to speed on what they've been through or listen to their story and let's keep working to come together as a movement that's 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 all united, we understand what's going on. These people are like celebrated war heroes. They've been on the battlefront. They've been behind enemy lines. They've been tortured. They've been kept from us, what are you, uh, pr uh, prisoners of war, and they're back now. We need to celebrate them, and we need to debrief them, and we need to use that intel. We need to we need to get serious about what we're dealing with, because otherwise, this is just some kind of entertainment that folks want to listen to. You know, every Wednesday night or in some kind of podcast, you know, and and I'm not here for your entertainment. I'm trying to get free. Amen to that, brother. You know, before we go on to our next segment, I want to shout out three different stories that I just posted on New Abolitionist Radio out of our big pile of stories that you should check out. One is an Arkansas judge who resigned after thousands of photos of nude male defendants were found on his computer. Apparently, he was negotiating with defendants for sex 
in exchange for lighter sentences. And he was keeping records by taking photographs of these new defendants that he had sex with. That is something that is just, oh my God, it's just outrageous. And his entire career now should be examined. I'm sure there's a lot of people who are innocent that are in prison because of this judge. Another one is in South Carolina, where a South Carolina man got bail after he shot and buried and slow-cooked two people who did nothing more than come to his house trying to get their money for his taxi that he had just took and jumped out of. He killed these people, then he burned their bodies, cleaned up the mess, and buried them in his backyard. And now he's out on bail. The other one is the ex-Charleston police officer who is indicted in shooting death of Walter Scott. So today we got an indictment of uh, the killer of Walter Scott, apparently for lying to the court. Yeah, that's Not a federal indictment, that, though. That's, the court. that's different than the state. That's a federal indictment on uh, civil rights violations, which rarely happens. Um, I think there was a story that came out recently that 96% of their cases, they find that the police did nothing wrong, so this is rare, you know, because they went in there with investigate Michael Brown's killing by Darren Wilson, who was mentioned earlier, and they found nothing wrong. So this is rare, but yeah, this was a federal indictment on violation of Walter Scott's civil rights. Well, there you have it. Those are available at our page on New Abolitionist Radio um, for you to go ahead and take a look at. Uh, I'd also like to put it, make a shout out to the underground. You know, we've been watching the underground. I don't know if you've been watching it, Scotty, but Johanna and I have. Have you been watching underground? Um, no. You talking about the television program? Yes. I haven't had the opportunity, but I do. I am aware of its existence. Yep, when you get a chance, you should watch it. Today was a marathon of the entire season with the season finale coming on directly after New Abolitionist Radio goes off the air. Uh, it's an amazing series. It answers a lot of questions, and it shows uh, the connection between today and yesterday and how we're dealing with much of the same issues and shines a brighter light on exactly how people existed and what type of mentalities they had and why they did the things they did during those times. We highly suggest that you watch the series. Uh, you can find it online if you uh, can't watch it on television today and watch the series online. But the series finale comes on tonight directly after I, this program. I, I have to admit, Max, I have sort of a version to those type of movies. I've never even seen the clips of this one. I've seen some of the promos, but none of the videos. But if it's anything like Roots, that was, Roots was traumatizing to me as no, a child. It's not like Roots. You, you know what it's I'm saying? Not. It was traumatizing to me, man. And all of this trauma on a psychological level, man, it has impact on, on your brain. So, I, you know, I rather read and research and, and, you know, the images, of course, are forming my mind. But when sometimes some of these shows, these brutal representations, which, you know, did occur, it's still, it's like, it's traumatizing to me to witness something like that. I have a version. Well, me, yeah, I look at these people like heroes because that's how they're portraying them as action heroes. Well, that's heroes good. That's good. But, but that's not what we're used to, so that's why I kind of shy away you know, from it. I, I might watch it once or twice. I'm not talking about this particular. Like, I saw Roots once and never watched it again. Too traumatizing. Saw Amistad. I, you know, uh, Django. Uh, I, I don't like to see, um, you know, uh, 
uh, people mistreated uh, like that in a manner. Although I know it is important, you know, to remember that history just personally. I, you know, I already know the historical, you know, I, I, I know all I need to know about it. In fact, I'm trying to expose how it still exists. So I, I just don't want to uh, subject my subconscious or conscience to, you know, violent, um, you know, uh, imagery like that, especially of white supremacists, you know, brutalizing black people. So, but you say it's not like that, I'll take your word for it. There is brutal brutality in here, but the way that they're portraying it really puts the people who are uh, going through these turmoils as the heroes, the action heroes, and it shows their determination. It's something to be proud of that we are ancestors of such strong-willed people. One of the parts that really uh, connected with me is the young girl who is the daughter of the slave owner, and she's uh, running and he has this huge bounty on her and he's uh, allowed slavers to beat her in front of him like you know she meant nothing to him and she was his daughter and that's just the type of environment that we come from our own blood kin was killing us on both ends of the spectrum and she had to deal with that on both levels not only from her slaver father but also the people who looked at her as the house slave or the house negro and she at one point said field or house it doesn't matter we're all slaves I just wish people could understand that. Right, right. I just got a uh, message in my inbox from one of our listeners and supporters that's encouraging you, Scotty, to go ahead and give it a listen. So you got Max, you got me, and even the listeners saying you need to give it a chance, bro, because, I mean, I'm I'm like you in a lot of ways with that, Scotty Reed. I had no intentions on following it, and I heard Max talking about it. And actually, I started out watching – the program on A and E first. The uh, what is it, sixty days or what was it where they had the people going yeah, into jail? Days in, I gave up on that crap. Yeah, I was. I started out watching that, and and so I just naturally connected them to together for no reason, just my own. You know how you do. Just she's like, oh man, they got these new shows talking about prison and slavery, and here we go with more BS or whatever. And I watched that, and I kind of kind of faded off of that pretty quick. And I actually missed the first couple of episodes of Underground until I finally went ahead and just watched it and I was getting people inboxing me and telling me it was so good and I tell you man it's so thoughtful it's so respectful of our ancestors of our people you know of of black folks period under them conditions whether you're an ancestor you know a descendant of, of slaves in America or not just showing people other than the traditional heroes that we know don't tend to have black skin I don't want to get too racial but just to see black folks in a situation where they don't have no options and they come up with heroic actions and their thought processes and the way they treat each other and treat the situation with seriousness it was a serious relief to my mental health to just see them taking it so serious and then being about that life like getting out there and doing what they had to do to get free it's, it's, it makes me happy to watch it and I don't give my endorsement to too much of nothing on TV mm-hmm. but I, but I'd say this is worth watching, man. Yeah, and, and the way they modernized it with uh, music of today involved, and it really made a big difference. You know, they, it, it, it's just well done and very yeah. thoughtful. And it also incorporates historical figures. As a matter of fact, season two has already been bought and paid for. And from what I understand, Harriet Tubman will be in season two. Yeah. And you can never discount the fact that it, they put they had enough love for us God shined his light down on us enough for the show to come on right after we get done every week. That's not lost mm-hmm. on me. 
So you can go right from modern day slavery right here on this program and just go right on over and watch the, the, the traditional and see the comparisons and how it's really the same. A lot of stuff they talk about on the program shows you the same conditions we live in here right now. So I, I give it a full endorsement. Word. Well, there you have it. And we're about 15 minutes before the end of our program. Just enough time to do our uh, abolitionist in profile right after we mentioned in this, which is kind of... Hey, hey yo, Yohanan, um, can you sure. do this one this week? Sure. I'm uh, looking for the link, though. I'm telling you, I'm on the planet. <laughs> so am I, too. Okay, but we changing up the music as we try to clean up our broadcast to get out on different platforms to reach even more people. Uh, we're okay. changing up the music, royalty-free music. So I know we had a theme music for that, um, but already, you know, uh, I'm seeing the benefits of doing that as I posted our programs from last week to YouTube and on one of the uh, programs, two, no, three companies try to uh, challenge us on copyright claims and whatnot. And uh, successfully, I was able to, you know, claim fair use or, uh, you know, show that, uh, no, this is our original content. So just want to give it the listeners as well as the host a heads up on, you know, the change. Right on. Um, if y'all give me a heads up on, um, what link I should be getting for it? I, you know, I'll be happy to, to close this out in this segment. <laughs> it's uh, Anthony Benazay, okay. seventeen thirteen to seventeen eighty four. Teacher, uh, let me yeah, see if I can help you. You found it. Yes, sir, I got it. I got. I got a couple of different links oh. I can I can use for it. Did you have one in particular that you wanted me to use for it? Uh, no, just pick whichever one you want. The main reason that I picked this particular abolitionist this week is because I wanted to give a shout-out to the Quaker movement, who has been doing a lot to help us with the abolitionist movement as they, they have uh, their traditional position uh, assisting in the abolitionist movement. So I want to give a shout-out to them. And here is one of their ancestors who did exactly that to try their best to help End slavery in the United States and stood against this atrocity against humanity. Right, this week's abolitionist in profile is Anthony Benizay, 1713 to 1784. Anthony Benizay was the second of 13 children born into a wealthy Huguenot family in Saint Quentin in France. He was two when his family fled to Rotterdam to escape religious persecution in France. Soon they came to London where they changed their French names to English ones. Anthony was probably educated at the French school in Wadsworth. The family immigrated to Pennsylvania in 1731. He became a member of the Religious Society of Friends and in 1736 he married a Philadelphia Quaker minister, Joyce Marriott. He tried various forms of employment, including selling commodities with his brothers, but in 1739 he found his true vocation was to become an educator. He started teaching in Germantown, Pennsylvania, and later at the Quaker School in Philadelphia. He wrote several primers and a book stressing the importance of a well-rounded education. His greatest achievement as an educator was with those who had no access to traditional schools. In 1750, he started to offer evening classes to black people, mostly in his own home. In 1754, he started the first Philadelphia Secondary School for Girls. He was always he always wanted to do the best for his students and to make the school as inclusive as possible. He devised a special program for deaf and dumb girls at the school so that so that they could participate fully in school life. 
1770, he convinced Quakers to build the first free day school for African Americans. He was also an abolitionist and challenged the assertion of black inferiority. At this time, many people, including Quakers, did not regard black and white as people that were equal. Benazade testified to his experience of the innate inequality of all people. He wrote an epistle seeking to eradicate slave owning amongst the Quakers, as he believed it to be inconsistent with Christianity and common justice. He wrote to London Yearly Meeting asking them to denounce slavery and also to Queen Charlotte, wife of George III of England in 1783, asking her to consider the plight of those who were enslaved and warning the divine displeasure that would occur to a nation that promoted such injustice. In his observations on the enslaving, importing, and purchasing of Negroes, the first publication that used stories of slave traders and other eyewitnesses, he points out that if buyers did not demand slaves, the supply would end. Without purchasers, he argued, there would be no trade, and consequently every purchaser, as he encourages the trade, becomes partaker in the guilt of it. His writings and works reached beyond America to the wider world. His anti-slavery tracts were circulated in America, England, and Europe. Benazay was well known in abolitionist circles and counted among his contacts Benjamin Franklin, John Wesley, and John and Samuel Fothergill. A short account of that part of Africa inhabited by the Negroes, published in 1762, was translated into French and German. And Anglican abolitionist Granville Sharp used this work in his first legal battle against slavery in 1767. Thomas Clarkson was greatly influenced to begin his fight against slavery by another of Benazay's books, Some Historical Account of Guinea, published in 1772. The same book was used by John Wesley as the first half of his own anti-slavery tract of 1774. He was able to secure some emancipation of slaves in Pennsylvania with this. Benazay also undertook one of the earliest relief initiatives where he set up arrangements for helping 500 refugees from Nova Scotia fleeing the British-French colonial war of 1713. He obtained government grants and, house, and had houses built for them in Philadelphia. He helped them with ed education and finding work. He endured much criticism from fellow Quakers, especially when the refugees refused offers to help them resettle elsewhere in Pennsylvania. Some of the refugees added to his difficulties by suspecting him of ulterior motives, such as selling them into slavery. Despite all of this, though, he persisted and helped me. He was interested in social issues and wrote about temperance, pacifism, and Native American reform. Upon his death in 1784, he willed his entire estate to support the education of African and Native American people. People of many races and creeds, including a large number of black people, were among the mourners at his funeral. And New Abolitionist Radio salutes this man. Salute Anthony Benazette. <laughs> Put in the work. Yes, he did, brother. Salute, and we've got a number of Quakers today who are putting in work. Uh, they've stood by my side, where we've been surrounded by hundreds of policemen in full riot gear and KKK members to be witnesses to this. And they've shared our information and taken it to their circles and their friends, and it's been written about in journals. So, yeah, shout out to Quakers of pulling up and, and, and making a difference, and we really appreciate that. Now, if only we could get the black church to do the same thing. Now you're talking right here. Now you're talking. 
Well, faith-based initiative put a lot of money in a lot of these folks' pockets, and they're going to lead them lead that flock the direction that they've been told to lead them. So uh, it says you can't serve God and uh, and money, and uh, the love of money is going to be the root of the evil. So, I mean, these are things that are very serious and very real. But uh, shout-out to that brother for doing what he had to do, and I call him a brother, regardless of the color of his skin, because he's about freedom, and he affected change that, that saved a lot of people's lives. So, you know, i got to respect that. Amen to that one, brother. Amen to that one. Well, this is uh, the final part of our program. Uh, we've got a few minutes left for final thoughts and statements or anything you want to leave our listeners with until they hear from us again here on blacktalkradionetwork.com on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, either one of you brothers want to start first? I'll start. Uh, this Scotty. Um, again, i got to close out by giving another shout-out to the legislatures, all the different lobbyist groups, because that's what those military veteran committees are the uh, people that were named or organizations were named were people who uh, saw a part of public policy that they uh, saw the inherent evil of and they worked together to change it. I mean, as I remember that story, it was a unanimous vote in every chamber, every all through the process, unanimously they voted to remove the exception clause out of the state constitution that allowed slavery to uh, be legal and continue to be practiced. So, um, again, uh, uh, who's the governor of Colorado? Um, uh, from what I could t- ascertain from that is that all it awaits is his signature, and that is like a shot across the bow, you know, against yeah. this war. In this war, uh, continuous uh, war to end slavery on this continent. So shout out to Colorado, shout out to the abolitionists. Indeed, indeed, indeed. I'm just going to sum mine up with telling folks, you know, definitely stick with us, stick with this, what we've been talking about. Go into the podcast, uh, support Black Talk Radio Project, Support, support this. Like, not just tuning in, but Come on, at this point, for years that you've been listening, for years that you've been taking advantage of this research, for years that you have never been wrong in any debate that you got into where you took the basic information that we shared on here. I mean, a lot of people are coming off as being well-informed and intelligent. I mean, I'm not even going to play around. A lot of y'all is, is living off of the information you got off this program, and that's fine. But you need to pay the piper this does not happen for free scotty reed gave blood sweat and tears to keep this going max partherson gave blood sweat and tears to keep this going i'm just riding with these guys but even i've sacrificed to keep this going we're trying to keep the truth in front of the troops but you got to give a little bit for this to keep going y'all need to support black talk radio just like all the posts we put out there, support the grassroots so we can keep this going. We're trying to get free. We're trying to get free. We're trying to dismantle a system that is running on autopilot and mowing us down. We're not talking about one-off situations. We're not talking about people that, well, if you didn't do the crime, you shouldn't. We're not talking about all that old BS. We're talking about people, innocent, unarmed, minding their own business, just trying to live, getting caught up, kidnapped, terrorized, raped, murdered, tortured, enslaved, beat, humiliated, falsely imprisoned. I mean, the whole nine yards, man, and it's all empowered by modern-day slavery language in our Constitution. Work with us. 
support the grassroots. That's all I got. Peace to the abolitionists, death to the oppressors. Peace to the abolitionists. Word. Um, I can say a lot tonight, and I'm going to just keep it as short as I possibly can. I do this because I love my people. I do this because I love my family. I'm a grandfather many times older, over, and the last thing I want to hear about is my grandchildren being hunted in the streets or ending up in prisons. I've already lost two sons. What do I need to pay you in order to make this end? What more do you want from me? What do you want from my family? What do you want from each of our listeners' family? This has to end, and it begins with you changing your language from mass incarceration, policing for profit, prison for profit, to slavery. Those are all components of slavery. And when you start looking at this as slavery, you change your mind and you approach it differently. That's the first step. The next step is to do something. Like I said earlier, I expect everybody who's listening to me right now that's involved in the educational system to make a phone call to their union representative and say to them, I don't want my money, the money that I will be retiring on, being invested in slavery. I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't want it to happen, and it's my money. Take it out, period. That's what I expect. And I also expect you to understand something that nowadays is getting around. People are starting to get it. Abolition is a reason for a revolution, so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Rise up, 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 rise just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up no matter if the prize is high in the skies or deep deep in perdition if our leaders are globally despised and always seem to rise through attrition or blatant nepotism if women and children have to live in impossible conditions if you have to die due to someone else's damn decisions rise up when innocent citizens perish for all our sins sake